understand you had a nice rain this past uh, weekend. Uh, Carolyn and I were camped up north of here, and uh, the rain that you received uh, Saturday morning, we got early Saturday morning. It was a real uh, frog strangler of a rain. Uh, I, uh, I, love, I love rain. I love to hear it hitting the roof of our trailer. I woke up, uh, I don't know, about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. And uh, just uh, luxuriated in it. I, this is terrific to be able to to listen to the rain hitting the uh, the roof of our trailer. And the next morning, I got up and uh, I'd left the hatches up on the trailer. <laughs> so, as they say, into every life, a little rain must fall. <laughs> would you turn with me, please, to First Thessalonians chapter two? And I would like to read for you verses thirteen through sixteen. Just those uh, four verses. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit, the wrath of God has come upon them fully. I was struck again this past week as I read this paragraph by that one phrase, our word to you was not the word of man, but in actuality it is the word of God, which is a remarkable thing for a man to say. Uh, It's a very bold statement, uh, reminiscent of other of these these statements of authority, almost self-conscious authority with which the apostles speak of their writings. These writings that Paul put on the page were the writings of men. He used the language of men. He used the grammar and syntax and vocabulary of men. He wrote out of his uh, own rabbinic uh, background. And yet, as Paul puts it, what I put on the page is, in fact, the very word of God. It's a very audacious statement unless it's uh, true. You find the the other apostles saying exactly the same thing. Peter believed that his words were the word of God. Uh, John, the apostle John, believed that his words were the word of God. Now, I, I realize that for many of you, the scriptures are new. We have a number of people here in our congregation who are either not yet Christians, you're on the way, the Bible is a brand new book to you, you're trying to find your way around the Bible, uh, or you are new Christians and you're still trying to find out how all the pieces fit together. I can tell uh, who you are because when I announce a text, you're the folks that look at the index in the front to find the, uh, the book, or you look over your neighbor's shoulder to try to find out where it is, uh, and that's all right. That's all right. It's okay to be ignorant about the Bible if you have not had any contact with the Bible. Now, if you've been a Christian for five years and you're still ignorant of the Bible, we worry about you. But uh, if you're brand new to the Word, that's, that's okay. 
Therefore, for those of you who may be newcomers to the Scriptures, this notion that God's Word is revealed through man's Word may be something brand new and difficult for you to grasp. Now, I want to try to explain as quickly as I can how God's Word came to be in man's language, because I think that's important uh, for our understanding. If, If you are new to the Bible... You probably noticed on the outside of the Bible, in gold, normally, the words Holy Bible. That's usually where people start, and that's where some people stop. Uh, The word Bible is easy to explain. It simply means book. It's based on the Greek word for book, biblon, biblion, little book, actually. Uh, We talk about the Shooter's Bible, the Fisher's Bible, whatnot. The word Bible just means book. There's nothing special about the word. Actually, it means papyrus. There was a city in the ancient world called Byblos, book city, from which they exported papyrus, and that's what a book is. It's a biblion, little book. So Bible just means book, that's all. Holy is something else. Most of us, if we dredge around in our subconscious, come up with the wrong notions of holiness. Uh, We think of someone totally separated from us, someone very different, someone otherworldly, someone who's not much good here on earth, whose mind is in heaven. We think of uh, prophets, uh, someone with long faces and drab uh, clothes. But the word holy basically means set apart, separated For a special purpose. Those chairs that you're sitting in, in terms of this word, are holy chairs. You didn't know that, but they are. That means they are intended to be sat in. That's the purpose for which they were constructed. You don't use them to play racquetball with. uh, You're not supposed to stand on them. You sit in them. That's what they're for. Now that is the fundamental meaning of that word. Holy, set apart, separated for a particular purpose. Therefore, the term Holy Bible simply means a book that's set apart, a book that's different, a book that's unique, a book that's unlike any other book. So our question then is, in what way is the Bible unlike any other book? Uh, The words in our translations are English words, and we read them just as we would read any piece of literature. You don't read uh, the words backwards or diagonally across the page or upside down. Uh, We expect poetry to sound like poetry, history to be history. Uh, We we apply the normal rules of grammar and syntax that we apply to any language. It's just normal, everyday English in the translations. Wherein is this book different? Well, it may be a little bigger than most books that you've read, unless you're into reading big city uh, telephone books or Russian novels, but uh, that in itself is not unusual. Uh, it may be the fact that it's, uh, it's an old book. Some portions of the Bible are at least 4,000 years old, and the sources from which those writings were taken are probably much older than that, but that in itself doesn't uh, set the Bible apart. It may be that it's an Eastern book, and it is. As uh, Kipling said, East is East, and West is West, and never the twain shall meet. Where's the twain? On the twack. (laughs) Uh, No, Kipling didn't say that. (laughs) But he did point out that there's a vast difference between East and West, 
and it is true that it's sometimes difficult for us to understand writings that come from, from the East. Nevertheless, this is a book that's been ransacked, investigated, exegeted, uh, researched. Uh, the, we know the historical background, the cultural background. We understand the languages very well. And the translations that we have are excellent. They are all too clear. Theologians talk about, they use a long word, they talk about the perspicacity of the text. That is, it's clear. I don't know why they don't just say that, but (laughs) it's clear. You can understand it. Anyone can read the Bible and understand it. As Mark Twain put it, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me, it's the parts that I do. No, the uniqueness of the Bible lies in the fact that it's God's word. It's the only book that makes that claim. That, uh, that we as Christians believe in. Other books make that claim, and we're not, merely, we're not saying that the Bible is true simply as a reflex of, of its own claims, but, but it does make that claim. It claims to be God's word through men, and in particular, Jewish men. Now let me explain. Once upon a time there was an old wizard uh, his name was Balaam. He was a, a real life uh, uh, magician. Lived in uh, what today is is Babylon, or the Middle East, we would say. He was sent by a king by the name of Balak to curse Israel. Except uh, whenever he opened his mouth to curse Israel, out would come a blessing. It's the most frustrating thing in the world uh, for Balaam because he was paid to curse Israel. And he knew he wouldn't be paid if he didn't deliver these curses. But every time he opened his mouth, out came a poem that enriched Israel in some way. And one of these poems says something like this. There is no divination in Israel. It will be said to Israel and Jacob what God has done. In other words, it was God's plan to reveal himself to this nation, Israel, and through the nation of Israel to the whole world. And that revelation would not come through divination, that is, through casting sticks or looking at the stars or looking at crystal balls or palm reading or necromancy or any of the other forms of of divination that were used in, in the ancient world. would come through tarot cards. N- none of that sort of thing would go on. No occult ways of finding out the will of God. How would Israel know? God would speak to them. He would speak to them. It would be said to Israel what God has done. Uh, you know the old saying, how odd of God to choose the Jews. How odd of God to choose anyone. Didn't pick Israel because they had a genius for religion. He just picked them out. They didn't discover the truth about God because they had a propensity toward religious things. The truth was disclosed to them. It was, it was revealed. Moses was the first of a long line of prophets to whom God spoke. Uh, to use the Hebrew idiom, God spoke mouth to mouth to Moses, face to face. Direct revelation. He didn't look in, open an animal and look inside to find the will of God. He, God spoke to him face to face. From Moses, Israel derived what we call the first five books of the Bible, probably originally uh, one book, perhaps in a number of different scrolls, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, when Israel went into Canaan, 
middle of the 15th century B.C., we believe. Their question was this. Moses is about to die. How will we know when the next prophet comes? How will we discern God's voice from the plethora of pagan voices around us? The Canaanites had their uh, prophets. The Syrians had their prophets. Uh, everyone had, had their own set of prophets. How, how do we know the voice of God? So God gave them three tests. The first again, it must be a Jew. God will speak through a Jew. Secondly, he will speak face to face. It will be direct revelation. It won't come through dreams necessarily. It won't come through divination. It will come as God reveals himself directly to that prophet. And third, that prophet must predict the future with 100% accuracy. That was the bottom line test. Prophets were mostly preachers. They proclaimed the will of God. But one of the ways you could know if they were speaking for God or simply speaking for themselves or from, from some other source was whether or not their predictions came true. So in every case, the prophets gave a short-range prophecy, short-range prophecy by which their proclamations could be tested. If the prediction came true, then they were a prophet of God. If it did not, Moses said, don't be afraid of them. Don't be in awe of them. Say, fui on yui, you are not a prophet of God. Now, uh, from, that, uh, from that point on, Israel had a bunch of prophets, and we know their names, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, a uh, number of men who spoke in, in man's language. They spoke in Hebrew and Aramaic, and they wrote in those languages. But what they wrote was the Word of God, and their predictions authenticated their proclamations. Oh, about the 5th century B.C., the, the process came to an end. For whatever reason... God no longer spoke through men. And for about 400 years, in terms of any new revelation, God was silent. The Old Testament was there for the reading. That was God's word for that time. But uh, he did not speak any longer until he spoke in his son, as Hebrews puts it. God's final revelation was through his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, he, as Hebrews puts it, God who spoke through the prophets in various ways has in these last days spoken unto us in a son. That's our Lord Jesus. And then our Lord passed on his authority to the twelve. The apostles. Let me show you a couple of verses in the Gospel of John. If you turn with me first to the 14th chapter of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John is the fourth of the Gospels. Chapter 14, this is the upper room. The eleven apostles are gathered. Judas has now left the apostolic band. Jesus says to them in verse 25, John 14, 25, Bear in mind, these are the apostles. All this I have spoken to you while still with you, but the Counselor of the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. That phrase, will teach you all things, was the apostolic warrant for writing their letters, all of Paul's letters, Peter's letters, John's letters. Paul, of course, was an apostle later, appointed later, but uh, he had the same authority as the original 12. And uh, that is their authority for writing Scripture writing the what we call the epistles. Notice also, he says, I will remind you of everything I have said to you. That's their warrant for writing the Gospels. That's why the apostles remembered 
with such fine detail the things that Jesus said and did. The Holy Spirit reminded them of what he said, and that's why Matthew and John could write with such such accuracy. Now look at uh, chapter 16, verse 12. Again, to the apostles, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you, apostles, into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. That covers the predictive element in the apostles' writing. That's what authenticated them as prophets. They knew what was to come. They could predict the future. That was John's warrant, for example, for uh, for writing the book of Revelation. He was a prophet who predicted the future. Now, all of this is simply to say that the apostles had the same authority that the Old Testament prophets had. When they spoke, they spoke with the authority of God specifically with the authority of Jesus Christ. That's why I've never been comfortable with so-called red-letter Bibles, because they may give the impression that Jesus' words, as some of you may know, red-letter Bibles are those Bibles that contain the words of Jesus in red print. And you may read that and think those are more significant, those are more important. But Paul would have us know from this passage that his writings come with the same authority that Jesus' writings came. As a matter of fact, when Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, he makes obedience to apostolic authority the test of whether or not we are Christians. He says, if we are truly Christian, we will submit to the the authority of of the apostles. Now, Paul uh, draws an interesting picture for us in 1 Corinthians 3. You don't need to turn to that passage, but I want to describe in just a few words what Paul is saying. Let me try to draw out the problem for you. Here, over here, is, is God, and he has thoughts in his mind. What Paul calls the deep things of God, the, the profundities of God, we say, ah, oh, I know what that is, the deep things of God. Eschatology. Ecclesiology, pneumatology, soteriology, the divine decrees, predestination, and free will. No, no, that's not what he's thinking about. The deep things of God are the secrets of life. They are what a friend of mine used to call the lost secrets of humanity. They have to do with things like guilt. How do you deal with guilt in your life? How do you heal a hurting marriage? How can you be reconciled with a, with a, a brother or sister when that relationship is, is disrupted? How can you find meaning and purpose in life? What can you do when your heart is breaking? Those are the secrets that have been lost, which Paul says the rulers of this age don't understand. By rulers of this age, he's talking about the opinion shapers and the shakers and movers of our uh, of our time, the psychiatrists, the philosophers, the psychologists, the economists, the social scientists, uh, the people that seem to understand life and tell us how life works and what works and what doesn't work. And Paul says, they don't understand. They don't understand. And one evidence of the fact that they don't understand is that they killed the Lord of glory when he came. When God came to save them, they put him to death. That's what the wisdom of man will do for us. 
Paul says they don't understand these deep things of God. God knows what will save the human race. God knows what will bring peace to your tortured soul. God knows, and He wants you to know. So how is He going to get His thoughts into your thoughts? How are you going to learn to think His thoughts after Him? Well, very often I'm sitting at home in our family room, and Carolyn will say, what are you thinking about? And I have to tell her, I have to speak, because she doesn't know what's in my mind. It's exactly the analogy that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 3. How do you get the thoughts of God into the thoughts of man? The process is this. The thoughts of God are translated into the thoughts of the apostles by the Holy Spirit. He takes the thoughts of God and puts them into the minds of the apostles. And then those thoughts that are in the apostles' minds are translated into words. And those words are communicated to us, and then Paul says, by means of the Holy Spirit, those thoughts are translated into life. We understand. And that's how the thoughts of God get into the thoughts of into the thoughts of uh, of man. That's how we understand what life is all about. That, that's how we can face into difficult times and not panic. That's where we can can discover a resource for living when everything else lets us down. When there's nothing left, there are always those thoughts of God that sustain us through life. Now, Paul says about those thoughts that they work. That's the way he puts it. Uh, Verse 13, when you accepted it, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God which is at work in you who believe. It works if you believe it. Now, uh, Isaiah uses a different analogy. In in talking about the word, he says it's like the rain. Rain falls on the earth, the earth produces fruit. It works. Isaiah says the same thing is true of God's word. It will not return void. It works. It does something to you. It changes your life. What does it do? Well, as you first begin to read it, you come to realize that God loves you very much. That's something you wouldn't know apart from Revelation. You never guess from this world, red as it is in tooth and claw, that God cares about us. But he does. He loves us. So much so that he He became one of us. It's what the incarnation is all about. God is with us. God manifest in the flesh. And then God died for us. He gave his life up for us. The, the song that children sing puts it very well. Jesus loves me, this I know. Why? Because the Bible tells me so. See, we would not know, we would not understand the cross unless God explained it to us. And then once we come to know God's love from the Word, and once we respond to it and we receive it by faith, then God begins to change us. The Word begins to to work in the sense that it affects our lives. We begin to become more and more like other Christians that are being conformed to the will of God. That's what Paul means when he says, you became imitators of God's churches in Judas. Not that they suddenly decided to be like other Christians, But something begins to happen inside. The Bible begins to work. It begins to change us. Not 
so that we're all exactly alike. God does not do away with your personality. It does not make you something that, that you're not. As a matter of fact, you become more and more yourself as you begin to spend time in the Word, and it begins to work in your heart and, and change your life. I always think of Christmas tree lights in that regard. They're all different. They're all, they have different colors, but the same power illuminates them all. The Word working in our life through the power of the Holy Spirit begins to change us, little by little. It works. That's what Paul says. Now, let me give you an illustration. It's homely, and it's personal. I have, for a long time, struggled with wanting to be understood. Do you have that problem? Uh, I suspect not, but uh, I don't like it when I'm not understood. And... um, when I'm, my actions are misconstrued, when my words are misunderstood, uh, when people resent me for what I do, when they criticize me, I don't like that. And I, it's very easy for me to fly to my own defense. The dukes go up. Uh, I flood the moat. I pull up the drawbridge. I retreat behind the walls. And people break their lances trying to, uh, trying to break through Uh, That's not good. That's not good. The Beatitude says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness means non-defensiveness. Now, you'd never guess from what the world tells you that it's wrong to be defensive. After all, you know, we, we have to protect ourselves. If we don't, who will? So, you know, we're being counseled all the time. If you want to have self-esteem, you've, you've got to let people know where you stand. Um, doesn't work very well. You never feel very good about yourself when you defend yourself. It, it always lowers your sense of self-esteem. Um, and the Bible tells us that that's true. Just be non-defensive. Be meek. Augustine prayed over and over again, God, deliver me from this lust to protect myself. And that's been my prayer for years. I ask uh, God over and over again, just don't let me protect and and defend myself. I was talking to a a friend this past week. Uh, We have spent literally hours on the phone talking in the past few months. He's the pastor of a church in another state. And uh, he's... He's one of these underpaid, underappreciated, overworked pastors in a rural setting. Very difficult situation. He came out of a a large Presbyterian church where he was a college pastor, very successful ministry, one of the most successful ministries on the West Coast, university students. Went to another place where he was misunderstood. He's been criticized. Uh, He's having a very, very difficult time of it. And uh, we were chatting about his situation on the, on the phone, and he's determined that God wants him to just stay put and continue to minister. And he's trying to learn meekness, too. And both of us were talking about what a, what a hard time we have being meek when we're protected and when we're attacked. And uh, he read to me these words from Isaiah 53, 7. He said he'd been meditating on this, this statement of, uh, concerning the Lord Jesus. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. 
like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. And it's that twice-repeated phrase that gripped his mind. He did not open his mouth. And he said, I'm praying that I'll become a dumb Christian. Now, you know, it was all right to explain yourself. That's okay. But we should not protect and defend ourselves. As St. Francis put it, we don't need to be understood. We need to be understanding. That's the biblical way. You see, that's so different. It's so backward from the way the world puts it. But that's the word of God through the word of man. And as we meditate upon his word, it begins to work. It begins to change our hearts. As I like to put it, there's, there's a magic in the word. I don't fully understand it, but the Holy Spirit begins to take those words and they become, they become more than words. They begin to become reality. Now, I fail a lot. I, this past weekend, I got real defensive about something and someone uh, said something about me that wasn't really very bad at all and I really took uh, umbrage at it and, and you know, verbally the dukes went up. I struggle with that, but... But as I look back, I, you know, I think I'm a little less defensive than I was 10 years ago. A little bit. <laughs> but it's working. It's working. Try reading the Bible. I think you'll like it. It, it has a way of, of changing your heart. It has a way of changing your mind. You begin to think God's thoughts after him. As, as a matter of fact, Paul, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 3... We actually have the mind of Christ. We begin to think like Christ thinks as we give our hearts to the word. Now, uh, just a, a word or two in closing about these people who oppose the word. Uh, he just, Paul describes them in verse 15, those who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that, that they may be saved. And then he says of them that the wrath of God has come upon them fully. It's those two phrases that caught my eye as I read this paragraph this last week. They're hostile to all men and the wrath of God has come upon them fully, which is an interesting way to put it. First, they're hostile to all men. Isn't that an odd thing to say about religious folks and people who consider themselves very humane, people who are humanists, who want the very best for men and women? And yet, if they oppose the gospel and they keep people from, from passing out the gospel or preaching the gospel, they are hostile to all men. In other words, they are preventing them from hearing these secrets that make life livable, that enable you to live life and like it. Hardin was telling me about uh, some of the problems the Gideons have in passing out Bibles. You can pass out anything on a campus these days, but you try passing out a Bible and someone will oppose it. And very often in the name of freedom and liberty and, and, and humanitarianism, humanism, but Paul says they're, they're hostile. They're hostile to all men. I uh, remember this, this segment in one of uh, uh, Ronaldo Rivera's uh, programs last year when he was interviewing a young man who's being held in Texas in a prison for murdering his mother when he was um, under the influence of drugs. And this young man has since become a Christian. 
Some of you may remember that segment. The young man began to tell what had changed his life. He said, I was on drugs all my life. Nothing worked. I tried everything. Nothing worked until I met Jesus Christ. And he, Revere, cut him off just like that before he had a chance to talk about the saving grace of Christ. That man is hostile to all men. He's very kind, very, you know, he's, he's, ostensibly he's all for man. But Paul would say he's hostile to the grace of God. He will not permit people to hear the gospel. Striking statement. The other thing that's interesting to me is this idea that the wrath of God has come upon them. Uh, God does not strike people down with lightning bolts. This, he's not talking about a future wrath which they must face, although this, this is the case. He's rather talking about what's already true. And I think Paul is talking about the same wrath that he describes in Romans 1 where God simply lets people have their way. He takes their hands off of them and he permits sin to, to take its natural course and they pay the natural consequences of, of their sin. I was trying to think this past week of a good illustration of this principle and I, I just happened to walk into the uh, family room late in the, after, in the evening and flipped on the television set and some inane program came on and I thought, aha, there is a beautiful illustration. Uh, I don't know if you realize it or not, but television executives, the people that are that are writing pro- these programs are are essentially given to mocking biblical values. Uh, But it's done so humorously and done so subtly that it's sometimes difficult for us to pick it up. The humor slides under our moral censors, and uh, we're taught new values without even realizing it. If you stop and think about the television programs, you by the way, I'm not against television, please, you know, understand me. I'm talking about the stuff that comes through the tube. 90% of it, this would be true. It's fantasy land. And the worst kind of fantasy, because if I, as I said before, in the real world, goodness is sweet and fresh and simple and fulfilling. It's very gratifying when people act according to righteousness. But when we act uh, in evil ways, life becomes dull and boring and meaningless and prosaic. And uh, we just begin to disintegrate. Nothing is worth living for anymore. But you see, the media, this particular medium, television, turns that around. Where evil becomes good and good becomes evil. Evil is exciting and zestful and, you know, teenage sex is good, clean fun and adultery is a barrel of laughs. And, uh, but in real life, the young women, the unmarried pregnant women that sit in my office aren't laughing. And uh, the children who are the victims of their father's lust for something more than their marriage, they aren't laughing. That's real life. That's the real world. And uh, the media, this particular medium, has not yet joined the real world. What they're doing is feeding us a bunch of lies, and it slips in under our... You see, these are the rulers of this age, the opinion makers, the shapers of our thinking, and it slips in under our moral censors because it's done so cannily, see? So clever. We don't pick it up. And you know what I think God has done? I think he's just taken his hands off these people, and he's letting them go. And that's why TV is so banal. 
and so non-creative and so repetitious. It is garbage. You can hardly watch anything anymore that has any truth in it or any significance that's at all creative or just good drama. Very difficult to find. And I think that's an example of the wrath of God. As Ernie Kovac put it so well, thinking of television, medium, he said, is exactly the right term for it. It is neither rare nor well done. (laughs) So, bottom line, read the Bible. Read the Bible. As a friend of mine sings, read the Bible. The words inside are true and reliable. Read the Bible. It's the words of God. That's where you're going to find truth. That's where you're going to find something that will steer you through life and keep you from cracking up on the, on the rocks. The only reason I can think of for not reading the Bible is that it makes God too personal. When God gets up close and personal, we get, we get uneasy. C.S. Lewis long ago pointed out that you can talk about truth, beauty, and justice, and meaning, and people will remain friendly. But the minute you talk about God as involved and personal, then the temperature drops in the room. And that's why some people don't want to read the Bible because the Bible keeps telling us that Jesus loves us and he wants to get very close to us. He wants to come into our lives, get involved in our world, and that's the sort of thing that some people do not want to hear. I'll leave you with one word from George MacDonald. It's one that I've, a phrase that I've used before. If you don't think about the meaning of the Bible, Your life is a failure. Those are strong words, but they're good words. If you don't think about the meaning of the Bible, your life is a failure. So try it. I think you'll like it. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us of our sloth, our laziness of body and mind that causes us to... uh, to, to look for ways to be entertained and refreshed and and energized, invigorated in, in something other than the Word of God. To spend so much of our time in pursuits that, though they may be good, are not the best, they do not really feed our souls. Lord, help us to uh, see the value of soul-making, of turning again and again to the Word to permit the Word to speak to our hearts and begin to change us and, and, and make us into the, the right kind of people. Help us, give us the courage to let the Word review our lives. Help us to see it like a mirror in which we look and see the, the dirt in our lives that needs to be cleansed. And then by means of your Holy Spirit, make the, make the truth true in us. Help us to link the word with life and live it out wherever we go. Keep us from treating the Bible like a magic charm, something if we simply read or carry will do something to us. Help us to to read it and believe it. Put it to work. Try it out. We we have to trust in something, Lord, and we We believe your words are true. We want to trust you. Make us men and women of the book who who know it, who look through it, 
to you, who worship you because of it, and whose lives are being renewed because of our submission to it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.